left, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads. We're going, we don't need roads. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today. But the core of science fiction, its essence has become crucial to our salvation. Tell me how many lights you see. There are four lights! So this is how liberty dies. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. Good evening. I am Miles P. McLaughlin. Hi, I'm Ciro Garcia. I'm Chrissy Raffensperger. And I'm Dave Sellers. And it's been uh, great. It's great. We have the entire crew here tonight. Woo-hoo. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. You know, it's when we talk about COVID nineteen impacting schedules. In some cases, it frees up time. In other, in other cases, it causes people to work overtime. As in, in your case, Em. Um, so, yes. yeah. So it there's was, a uh, lot going on. I work at a bank, so yeah. there's a whole lot going on. Yeah, so. banks are busy. <laughs> yeah, banks are busy. Yes. Uh, no doubt. Well, uh, Miles, we have a very, uh, and everyone else too, but we have a very special guest kind of rejoining us. Someone that's been on the show, I don't know how many times, uh, but quite a few times. Do you want to introduce our guest here? Sure. So to help us discuss and examine where no man has gone before is a writer whose work has enhanced my love of Star Trek and whose books I've enjoyed for many years is Mr. Michael Jan Friedman, a prolific writer of uh, 40 Star Trek novels, comic comics and short stories and i could be wrong with that number could um and also a screenplay for star trek resistance star trek voyagers resistance there's also his work in dc comics and uh, his original works which can be checked out on crazy Ape press and other great places to find books uh, what i've appreciated is i get to see michael at the conventions every year and we get to talk star trek life uh and uh i just enjoyed you know just, just this friendship we, we've had over with, with Michael for the last uh, few years, uh, at, particularly at Shore Leave and at Farpoint. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show, Mike. Well, thank you, thank you. That was that was a great uh, a great introduction, uh, Miles. That was that was really terrific. And yeah. and in fact, I look forward to seeing you guys at the conventions as well. Oh, so, awesome, awesome. That? Well, very good. It's a really over forty Star Trek novels are books. Um, it's about, it's actually about 35 Star Trek novels and books and another, um, mm, another 45 books of other descriptions, wow. you know, uh, other, other franchises and original work and, and so on. Right, right. Um, wow. So it's, it's not like you're, you're, you're not writing at all. I mean, you know, it's just you're kind a, of kicking a back. No, no, right. <laughs> well, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> I'm writing right now. <laughs> You're writing yeah, right now as we're doing the show. You think he's like really engaged, but he's really writing a novel on the side. I mean, it's kind of he's able to multitask, right? That's impressive. It is. That's pretty, impressive. That's right. I can't do it. I can't do it. One thing at a time for me. One thing at a time. Uh, well, you do it long enough, it just happens. Right, right, right. You sleep and like osmosis, right? In through the pillows and out through the typewriter. But 
I imagine you're like Mr. Spock in the episode where they time traveled and he just sent Captain Kirk and Sulu down to the Earth and McCoy's like saying, what are you doing to get, you know, get us back here? And, and Spock's like, oh, I'm working on that too. Like he's doing both at the same time. That's what right. Michael Van Friedman's doing right now. It's <laughs> true. It's true. Well, so it's been a while since we've had you on the show. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit what's been going on in Michael Jan Friedman's life? I mean, especially in the world of writing. You're writing so much. What do you have coming out? What are you excited about? What's going on? Sure. Well, um, I'm just finishing my editing chores on um, Pangea 3. Okay, uh, this yeah. This is a series that we've kickstarted. Um, and, uh, this is the third and final collection of short stories by, you know, a dozen to 15 of, of the best science fiction writers around. Um, and, uh, and, and it was, it, it was kind of touch and go there. Like, you know, I said, okay, everybody, this is the last, um, uh, volume and, uh, and people are going, well, how are you going to wrap this up? You know, these are the writers I'm working with. And I'm like, ah, well, let's see. How about if you do that and you do that and. We'll hope for the best, and um, and miraculously, perhaps uh, uh, things did come together, and 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 they came together really well. I think. Good. Um, that's that's Pangea three. Uh, the idea there is that uh, mankind mankind lives on a supercontinent and has never lived on disparate continents in in you know his entire time on Earth. Oh. Um, things are different, you know. There's 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 no imperialism because everybody's on the same landmass. You don't get disparate levels of uh, technology, really. So um, so that's what I'm wrapping up now. And the next thing I'll be doing is uh, kickstarting a, and that'll be in a week or so. Um, kickstarting another short story collection, um, uh, fantasy, science fiction, superhero stories. And the, the, you know, it's funny, for a long time, I wrote book-length stories and, um, and, and really very little short fiction. And lately, I've really been getting into the short fiction. I've, I've, you know, the ideas that come to me are almost exclusively short fiction ideas. So, so I'm kind of um, uh, having a good time with that. And again, that'll that'll be in a week or so. I'll be I'll be uh, launching a, a Kickstarter campaign for that. So, what is it about short fiction that is just grabbing you right now? That maybe that the that that's maybe pulling you away from the long form of fiction. I think science fiction in general um, is best expressed in a short form. You know, in a half hour script, in a, in a 20 or 30 page short story, you know, it, it's a concept driven thing. So, um, once you've expressed that, why are you hanging out? You know, you don't need to be there any longer than that. Um, when, when you're doing a lot of, um, um, uh, media driven work, then, um, uh, you know, like Star Trek, for instance, which, you know, which I did so much of, um, they tell you what length you're going to write, you know, oh, right. this is a novel. So, you know, you're going to do that and, and you come up with an idea that has legs that'll, that'll carry you through 300 pages. But, um, left to my own devices. Now I'm, I'm finding, uh, um, I really, I really like the idea of getting in and out quickly and, 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 you know, exploring 
particular speculative fiction concept. Also, I think, uh, you know, the internet lends itself to that. You know, when I was starting out, nobody wanted to publish a book of short stories. You know, even, even Stephen King, you know, you know, when he came to his publisher and said, you know, I'd like to do some short stories, he said, do you have to? You know, I mean, they just don't sell that well. So, um, uh, but, but it's actually kind of the opposite on, on, the, on the internet and uh, in crowdfunding uh, campaigns. You see a lot of short fiction, and 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 why not? There's um, there's no um, market expectation that uh, everything has to be a novel, right? And especially when you're getting a, especially when you're crowdfunding it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 I yeah. mean, you know, a, a collection of short stories. I, you know, I've had people come up to me at, at for instance, at Shoreleave and Farpoint and say how much they love short stories and how happy they are that I'm getting into them uh, because that's their favorite format. So oh, that's great. That's great. I know it was for me at a younger age and through the whole, this whole pandemic thing of being able to be stuck at home and cleaning out old things. I actually happened to find my very first Michael Jan Friedman book that I got in, well, I was a third or fourth grade. And it was Starfleet Academy number six. Ah. In that <laughs> kid's series. And I, I happened to look through it. I saw the author name was like, oh my gosh, we're talking to this guy. This is great. <laughs> yeah. And that was a shorter format. That was half, less than half the uh, size of uh, the adult novels I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. And you said, you said, uh, Dave, that was a uh, series of a bunch of different authors put that together, right? Yeah. Peter David did the first one. Um, I think you did, you did six and seven. I don't know if you did any yeah, more yeah. than that or not. Seven. I think Peter might've done one, two, and three. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and there was a, uh, I said it was next generation. And then there was another one, um, that uh, for Deep Space Nine, it was sort of the adventures of Jake and Nog. Yes, yes, yes. Right. I remember those. Uh, you're taking you're taking David down a, a trip down memory lane. There. Oh. <laughs> Simpler times. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, we got that. Well, uh, why don't we uh, go ahead and uh, we'll touch base a little bit more with you, uh, Michael, at the end of the show to finding out where people can find you know, Pangea three when it comes out and where they can support you and Kickstarter coming out in the upcoming weeks. Cause this episode should be out this week. So that means by next week, it'll, they they can be looking for it. And so, uh, and if there's any other place that people can find you, we'll, we'll talk at the end of the show about that. Uh, miles, why don't you go ahead and, uh, transition us here into our discussion of, I won't say the name of the episode cause I'll get it wrong. Man trap. No, I'm just kidding. Or no, oh, watch the wrong one. <laughs> no, I watched. I watched both. I watch. I did start watching the wrong one, and then I watched the right one. Then I finished the wrong one. So there. You go. Oh, to be fair. <laughs> to be fair, um, it's not totally Scott's fault. Uh, the way they, they they aired them out of order. Um, <laughs> they did. Like 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 TV has never done that before. No, but, no, um, not at all. Mm-hmm. Except any <laughs> true Trek fan knows the difference. Yes. I, I, never, right. I, I never right claimed, never claimed to be a true <laughs> Trek fan. All right. I got into Trek late 
and I like Trek, and you know, I love Trek. And my son, my son is now he actually watched both of the episodes with me, which impressed me because I thought, ah, he's not going to like the original series, right? Because we're going through Next Generation. He absolutely loves Next Generation, right? Um, and uh, but he, uh, lo, lo and behold, um, uh, he he kind of said, "This is cheesy, but I love it." <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, so he's not opposed to it. All right, so I might end up actually watching the original series all the way through, which I never have done. So, wow. so no, I'm not a true Trek fan. You can you can bust me all you want, but, so, but you're becoming one. Well, so that's okay. As like in the spectrum of nerddom, I think we should all like we're we've. At one point in our life, we've been excluded because we love science fiction. So as science fiction lovers, I think we should be accepting of all science fiction lovers, regardless of, you know, how insanely deep into the genre they are. So <laughs> let's be friends. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> right? And to, to, to be a woman who translates, you know, beautiful romantic songs from the 50s and 60s into Klingon. Right, right. Be nice. <laughs> each other <laughs> uh, we will to, to be fair miles has the right because i can't tell you how many times i've given digs at miles so all right we'll just go there but. <laughs> i was just trying to cut you cut, cut you some slack give you a little grace because they, 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 they aired them out of order it's, they did they did yeah. indeed they did indeed they did well, indeed but go ahead uh give us a little bit of a, a little a premise for this and then let's get into uh what stuck out to us in this kind of uh in this rewatch of this and what so, it meant for the series, I guess. Yeah, so just a short storyline. When the Enterprise attempts to penetrate a space barrier, it is damaged and creates a potentially worse problem. Two crew members, including Kirk's best friend, gain psionic powers that are growing exponentially. This leaves Captain Kirk with a difficult choice, either marooning them or killing them before they get so powerful they lose their humanity and truly become dangerous. Dun, dun, dun. All right. So uh, where do you guys want to start? What do you guys want to talk about? Well, well as a child, I mean, I, I, I watched Star Trek for a long time. It was not one of my favorite episodes. However, I rewatched it uh, back in, um, it's been nine years ago uh, at your house, Scott. We were actually getting rid of, getting ready to, um, um, for, for the Shore Leaf Convention and Two of the guest stars were Sally Kellerman and Gary Lockwood. And so I, I'll, I'll rewatch this. Right. And in rewatching it, it uh, I, I had a new set of eyes because it was like, yeah, they're, they're using the, the old cage uniforms. It, it doesn't look as good as I remember. I mean, when I watched it, the, the sets, it was an interesting place aesthetically. I mean, they were using, it was a, the, 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 the ship looked like a to, uh, toss up between, the cage and, and what we would normally see. It was it had it, it hadn't evolved to the look of, of, of the, the show moving forward. But what what struck me was the story it was telling and the ideas and the questions it was asking. Um, I was I was sucked in watching it after all those years. I thought, wow, this this is pretty powerful. I'm actually really engaged right now watching this. Even you know, it's it's fifty some years old, but it's it still had you know, a very engaging story to me. Yeah. Um, how about you? What was your impression coming back to this, watching it, um, seeing it come to life again? This is the first time I've seen it. Yeah. 
So what would you like? So how'd it feel? So as a kid, I remember like it was on channel 20 when I would get home from school and I would just put it on. And this is the first time I've actually like sat down and paid attention to it. And I, it's different from what I remember. Um, to me, the only, I I kept getting focused on the, the aesthetic differences. Like why was Spock yellow green? And why are those their uniforms all squirrely? And then I started going down the rabbit hole of the whys and what fors. And the story was really neat. And then I started digging into wanting to learn why, you know, this is the this is the secondary pilot. It's the pilot that was released. It this was the first show that was aired. Is that correct? No, man. Is this, why is it considered the second pilot? Um, I, I have a lot of questions about it, but in my mind, like uh, all I could see was really the camp of it and like Kirk's, you know, judo chop kind of style of <laughs> announcing what he was doing and being very like, I'm suave and debonair. And I, this, I liked the story, but got lost in the camp. Yeah. Hey, Michael, do you want to talk about the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, why this was called the second pilot? I, I believe you know, uh, I believe that this is the the show that they use to sell the 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 series. That's correct. So they had and they had because uh, it was too cerebral. I'm sorry. NBC had turned down the first one because it was too cerebral, right? It was it was right, too cerebral. Right. right, the one the one with um, uh, Jeffrey Hunter. Jeffrey, yes, Jeffrey Hunt. Thank you, thank you. So anyway, yeah, they they turned that, that down that one. They they re uh, they regrouped and they came up with this one, and this is what sold the series. But it wasn't the one that that aired first. Got it. Right. So it's considered the uh, Star Trek pilot, even though it's not really the first episode. Typically, uh, typically, got it. Typically, pilots okay. are first, but you know, whatever. So, <laughs> yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well. Uh, Let's go to you, Michael. Uh, so, what, as you were, as you uh, thought about this episode, what stuck out to you about this episode as you kind of either rewatched it or just uh, just look back on it? Well, I, I did see it when it first came out. Um, uh, I was I was about a month old, um, <laughs> and uh, um, the two things that, that that really appealed to me, well, three, I guess. One was that. Um, um, it it got into the uh, a relationship that was critical to to Kirk to Kirk's development to his self image. You know, I'm the captain, but I'm also this guy's friend. So that was that was really critical. That that humanized him, and it made him um, uh, much more interesting. Um, the uh, and 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 easier to relate to. Uh, secondly, and, and just in general, it was a captain episode. It was about him, you know, intimately about him. Um, and, and thirdly, it was kind of a, a superhero story, which I thought was, was cool. I mean, this is the closest we've come to uh, a superhero in Star Trek, uh, especially in the original series. And I was into superhero stories. So this was, this was very much the kind of space adventure that I really loved um, in the comics and in, and in books to see it. To see it on the screen that way, taking itself seriously, by the way, you know, it wasn't a joke. Um, I thought it was, it was very appealing. 
Oh, and it's true. It does play off like I never, I didn't think about it that way, but it does play off like a, a superhero show, and uh, and you're the villain, and it's uh, the, and they're kind of friends. I haven't seen that before, mm-hmm. but but oh, very good, Dave. How about you? Uh, as you as you look at this, uh, what what stuck out to you as you went back to revisit this episode? Well, it. it it reminded me a lot of my first impressions as a eight, nine year old kid when I saw it the first time and, and very much at that point is very much similar to kind of what M was saying too. Cause at that point I had never seen the cage. I hadn't seen the cage until I caught a repeat of the menagerie. It's on some syndication part, but I, I remember watching TOS years when I was younger. And then seeing this episode pop on and asking those a lot of those same questions. Wait a minute. Why are their uniforms different? Why is Spock smiling? This isn't, this doesn't seem right. And until I saw the cage and realized, okay, well, that came in between. And then until I was shamefully much older and realized, oh, that's how they ordered it up. Yeah. Very good. But yeah, it, it was, the story itself is I always thought was really good. I mean, certainly a little kind of campy, but it, I I thought it was a great tale. I thought it was a good episode, a good story and and really glad it's kind of set the tone for everything coming beyond there as far as, you know, what they face in their adventures and, and all those things. And it's still one of my favorites out of them all because it was really the first with Kirk and Spock and the gang. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Except for uh, Leonard Nimoy, it would have been the uh, first for all of them. So, yeah, um, Chrissy, how about you? I, I, I tell me a little bit about your impression well, watching this episode. Well, like everyone else, like I definitely noticed like the dated and like I don't know, like maybe I didn't think it was as campy as everyone else thinks it. Like I don't know. Um, maybe that's just because to me that error of television is just campy in general so like it seemed like it just fit um, but the thing that really struck me watching it was that that theme of a human being granted godlike powers and their reaction to it is something is a theme that gets revisited in the other Star Treks and so the answer that Star Trek gives to that situation and how the individual reacts and how others interact with them. And then the conclusion of that is, is different throughout the different series. And so it was very interesting to me to think that, you know, that also represents society's answer to that at different points in time, which got me thinking about the other themes that I noticed when I accidentally like Scott watched the wrong episode and then went, wait a minute. That's why I like um I messaged you the other night. Like, I don't think I watched the right one. Yeah. Um, is this the right one? So, but looking at like going, oh, those themes have been echoed across Star Trek. And so that's right. was the thing that really struck me was thinking about, you know, at different points in time, the same series so to speak, or universe answering it on um, right. the different questions that it asks and the fact that it keeps going back to those questions and keep asking them again. And we keep getting, you know, different, maybe more nuanced answers, maybe 
maybe and then like well maybe you should go back and watch those answers previously and then say hmm is the current answer we're giving the right one or was that answer they gave in the past one and because what really what i was thinking of is um Riker getting blessed by Q the next generation and you know he was able to kind of come back from it and say actually no I'm good but um what's that guy's name I'm not only remembering the actors Greg um his reaction was screw my humanity I'm gonna be a god and the only thing to do is stop me and kill me so that's yeah. where my thought process was going. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think this idea of playing God um, and being God and being able to control everything in our in our worlds and our lives um, with impunity has certainly been explored. Uh, Michael, have you ever explored this idea of God likeness in any of your novels, short stories, or anything? Well, yeah. I, I mean, you know, um, I. I I don't know if you really want to get into this now, but I I, uh, I was asked uh, to, uh, to write a book called The God Thing, okay. which was a collaboration with, with Gene Roddenberry after he passed away. It was a script that he had written, um, which was under consideration for the, the movie pilot, if you will. Um, the, uh, it, was, it was eventually rejected, and, and, but they kept some parts of it. And uh, that became, uh, um, with a lot of changes, became Star Trek the motion picture, or as some people like to call it, Star Trek the motionless picture. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it never got published for various reasons. We could probably do a whole show on that. But but uh, that was uh, um, something I worked on. Yeah. With, with, with the posthumous uh, collaborator. Oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. You know, this idea, this idea of exploration of, you know, what would you do if you were granted these powers? And um, I think the other thing that kind of uh, fascinated me as I watched the episode, I, I began to think the era that just came out and this whole ESP thing and this, this, this fascination. Um, I didn't grow up during the era, but, uh, but I've, I've read and studied some of the era. I know that the, the, whole, LS, the whole LSD and drug culture wanting to, kind of see beyond yourself um this seemed as an episode to fit right in thematically to the uh, you certainly didn't see any drug culture there uh in it uh but this idea of sensing or being able to sense things beyond yourself so the idea that esp kept popping up seemed appropriate as an error wise it would be i don't know it would seem a little bit weird today to see a Star Trek episode today coming out with the SP because no one's really focused on that sort of thing. But there was this idea of, you know, somehow elevating the mind's eye to see beyond. And and so I thought about that as I was sitting and watching this with my son, as I, you know, those kind of things, one of the things that stuck out to me, one of the things that stuck out to him was he kept saying, why are they blowing that dang whistle every time something happens on the bridge? So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, very, very much because it was based on the Navy. Exactly. That's what I explained to him. But it was like, it's, it's annoying. <laughs> but um, well, now Kiefer knows he doesn't want to join the Navy. Right. Good apparently job, not. Or, or the Enterprise, apparently, either. For um, that matter. 
Well, yeah. Well, yeah, because that was something that struck me because I was like, you know, they talk about how like she scored pretty high in ESP, but then I don't really remember that being a thing in the rest of um, the later Star Trek. Yeah. There, but yeah, that would that would have been the era of like you know Project MK Ultra and their the CIA experiment. So those were the, those were fun, totally unethical times. <laughs> fun but unethical, huh? <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to conduct a really unethical experiment. Time machine back to the sixties. There you go. You. I just watched Mad Men, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, Wild West of psychology. <laughs> there you go. Isn't that the the beginning? Isn't that like uh, it was all DARPA projects, yeah. or it was something? It was another ARPA. It was something a little different. But yeah. Mike, you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I was going to say ESP in that episode for for Gene was like radioactivity for Stan Lee. You know? Right. Oh yeah. yeah. If you expose somebody to uh, to radioactivity, they get superpowers. Of course. Right. Yeah. You, Makes they sense. have a higher ESP quotient, of course. They become super people. Right, right, right. They can control things, make cups float through the air. You know, who doesn't want that power, right? Apples. What was that? Uh, well, they uh, Gary grows a tree uh, out of no and and it grows apples. Oh yes, yes. That's right. Yep. I mean, if you have garlic powers, first thing you're gonna do is I want an apple. That's right. Hey, create your own Garden of Eden, right? Yeah, gas starts slow. Yeah, I well, damn with apples. Yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, but you know what happened in the Garden of Eden, so yeah, we know how that turned that. out. We turned out, yeah. Right, what were we gonna say? I, I think they they talk about they mentioned the Garden of Eden. They do. Yeah. They, they do. They right? Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah, they were gonna be Adam and Eve and create a new species of humanity. A super Which, species. You know what, Scott? They again. Next generation had a thing of espers. Those children that almost killed people. Remember that was that? season two. Doc, yeah, Doctor Plasky ended up uh, getting that disease that aged her. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now oh, I remember the Pulaski years. Oh, that was sort of like a, a bankrupt of ideas patch <laughs> where you know they were just taking the original series wholesale and mashing it together and hoping that it came out to be something. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, the network didn't cut it off after the second season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we've got, we got, we got some good stuff after that. That's for sure. So, uh, okay. So, you know, these are just kind of first impressions. Uh, what else as you watch through this episode and uh, either acting outfits, uh, the show itself, that kind of uh, jumped out as something that resonated with you as you kind of revisited this, uh, maybe kind of uh, pushed the series in the direction that it eventually went over the next three seasons. Well, you got to see that that uh, wardrobe was going to be a big expense item for uh, for um, Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It started there. <laughs> yep, it's true. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> several several uniform shirts per episode. I'm yeah. uh, sure, and depending on how Every many fight. how many times they had to reshoot that scene. Ah, oh, well, he tore his shirt again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think, they use a used a phaser rifle, right, to, uh, to fight Gary. Um, 
I'm trying to think if they had a phaser rifle anywhere else in the series. No, that's the only time. Wow. Right? Yeah. It was odd to see him with a rifle. That is true. Like, <laughs> they seem to all be very like with their little pistols before. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I thought Spock was all, all gung ho about. Let's kill Gary. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I want that on a shirt. Let's kill Gary. Let's kill Gary. <laughs> Just hope I don't run anyone named Gary, right? Let's kill Gary. <laughs> Only Star Trek. <laughs> totally Rambo. No one has no, any idea who Gary is or what he did to take <laughs> you off. I'm going to kill him. Let's kill Gary. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Uh, the idea that. Go, go ahead, Boy, then Spock, wasn't it? I mean, you know, he, he, he was getting second billing and he didn't want to. Share it with anybody. Ah, let's let's get rid of this character. <laughs> That's right, right, right. <laughs> oh my! But it was it was a little bit uncharacteristic of uh, Spock, you know. Uh, unless you unless you argue that it was a logical thing to do. I think it was. That's what it was. It was the, the cold logic, as opposed to any empathy. Well, and they kind of they kind of draw attention to the fact that he doesn't have empathy. The the headstone that Gary makes for um, for Kirk, I think it says James T. Kirk, right? Right. It it doesn't. I don't think it says Tiberius. It says James T. Kirk. They actually didn't know who who Kirk's middle name was. It said James R. Kirk. Oh, James R. Kirk. Right. 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 That's right. When I did the, um, I did a, a, a trilogy called My Brother's Keeper, and it was about Kirk and um, and Gary, and it had uh, things going on in the present day, and then it had flashbacks to their um, uh, to their uh, friendship at the academy, and then on the various uh, ships that they served on together. Finally, you know, finally uh, culminating the Enterprise, and. Um, uh, one of the running gags there was what what Kirk's middle name stands for. At one point, it was racquetball, something like that. Like, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, and 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 so it became like uh, it, it's coming back to me now. It became like an in joke that that his that his middle name was something that started with R. Um, um, when do we first find out that it is Tiberius? That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know the answer. I don't think we find out until Star Trek VI, the Undiscovered Country. Yeah, that's the first time you heard the name, I think. Oh, okay. So it was quite a bit after the series. Yeah, I mean, it's Gene T. Kirk throughout the series, but as far as we didn't know what the T was for the longest time. Right. Yeah, I guess Chang made a real point at saying Tiberius Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how much... uh, how much arguing the studio went, and what's his middle name? What are we going to make his middle name? <laughs> uh. in, in this in this trilogy, the 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 most poignant moment was at the at the end of the um, third book. Kirk has to go. Don't forget, he's been Gary's friend for a long time. He has to go meet Gary's parents and explain to them how Gary died. You know. They had the official explanation up until that point, but he felt, you know, he was my friend. I know these people. And he went and told them 
the true story about how Gary died oh. and that he killed him. Wow. Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was, a, it was a, a cool moment. And, you know, some, sometimes you kind of, uh, um, you know, you're on the right path when you affect yourself. You know, I was getting chills writing that scene. I was going to ask so, you how hard it was to write something like that, you know. It was very hard. It was hard. You, you know, you know, you, some of the equipment that you use to, to put emotions into scenes, you know, you, all, you also are probably hypersensitive to that kind of thing as a reader. And so, so you know, you have this feedback loop where you're putting all this emotion into the scene and getting it out at the same time. It's, right. It, be a little uncomfortable. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I, I I thought it was a brave choice in the show where Kirk has to kill his best friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, it, it adds on a you know sad note is that uh, Kirk can't save his friends from himself. He has to, and, and from everybody else, he has to kill him. Um, I just thought for. This is how we're going to sell people on the show. We're going to, you know, we're going to have some very dramatic here. But the, the, the hero has to kill his best friend. I think that's the point at which he really becomes the captain. You know, he's kind of deferential to Gary. You know, he, he, he gives him a lot of rope um, because they're friends. But um, finally, he has to make a decision between between Gary and, and his duty to the to the ship and the crew and, and he chooses the ship and the crew. And that's the point where he, you know, where he really sits in the captain's chair. Yeah. He almost, he almost in a sense earns that because he puts, he puts everyone else above it. Although throughout the entire episode, he's like, he's trying to give, he's trying to give Gary the benefit of the doubt. Let's, let's, let's just, you know, you know, we don't have to do that. And, uh, you know, Spock, you know, makes the intuitive leap right away. Like, here's what we need to do. Here's what needs to be done. And uh, no one else is, uh, well, he, Kirk's just not quite buying it quite yet. So, What do you think the, it'd be interesting to see how the decision process would have gone for. And this is coming from just a fan perspective on this too. If, in the discussions between Kirk and Spock about what to do with Gary, if you had McCoy in there, and just just to to see that dialogue going in between, knowing how Spock and McCoy are constantly at odds and arguing both sides of the coin, I just think that would have been interesting to see. When does Looking that back. when does that relationship between Spock McCoy really develop? Ooh, In that third Star Trek movie that nobody liked. Nah. <laughs> 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 it's not like that long, but it's um I think by Miri, maybe. Maybe you're you're starting to see uh, uh, um, some conflict between the two of them. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, you might be right. That's when it really starts ramping up and being noticeable. Right. So is that in the first season that we begin to see that, or is that second to third? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Got to be. Got to be. I think it's in the first season. The first season. Yeah. 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 When they when they differentiate themselves. By you the know, t- first, 
process to kind of solidify and become who he is before there's a conflict, because otherwise there's not that much of a contrast. Right. Right. Um, I was going to say, by the time you get into the uh, any of the pictures, the uh, motion or motionless picture, as you called it, uh, and from then on forward, um, it, it it you you see that conflict, and it's clear, and it and it's endearing, and they've also kind of have the conflict, but they're also committed to each other, and it's uh it's just an interesting that relationship becomes, you know, one of the one of you know one of our favorite relationships to kind of watch on the screen because you just you just want to see. McCoy's brassness come up against Spock's logic and uh, and just go at it and um, and so and you don't see that in this episode and probably my guess is you know in the early part of the season you aren't seeing this because as you said actors are still kind of getting their feet and they're still trying to get a feel for what are these characters who are they what do they do and how do they interact and what distinguishes themselves and that's a process as a writer and uh Thankfully, they had the uh, they got the room to grow. Well, you also have to have, like the chemist, the right chemistry between like the actors themselves, and to really like this. I've seen like when the actors have good chemistry, like then the relationship that is portrayed on screen is so much more. Um. So like it's almost like they have like a sibling sort of relationship by the end. Like they're constantly arguing, but you know they still love each other. Yeah. <laughs> true it is it is almost like a sibling relationship they're kind of they're kind of bickering but they uh they ultimately have the same same goal in mind yeah familiar uh relationship yeah yeah absolutely and you also get to really see that growth of spock from here he's ready to kill one of his crewmates out of pure logic and reason to the end product where he's learned a bit of empathy. He's learned that, you know, the needs of the one may be more important than the many, you know, and, and right. it, it's a good, it's a good foundation for his character to build on. No, to, to, totally agree with that. Totally agree. Uh, it's interesting to see even the growth of Spock's character from uh, coming from uh, the cage into the series and how they change and alter. Cause we did, you know, a month ago we did, uh, we did the uh, the pilot, the uh, the cage, the original pilot, uh, and to see Spock's character grow from that to them redefine it and change it a little bit, um, it was neat to see that change. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he was he was he was sort of very emotional. Oh yeah. For yeah. women. Uh, <laughs> and and when the not human. Pretty, he pretty, pretty emotional, and, you know, quirky, and yeah, they finally figured it out with him. I did see the. Um, it's interesting because uh, you know I know that you know Gene Roddenberry is a product of his times, but he was also very progressive, and it's interesting to see in this episode the women bringing like Sulu the tray or well, that was the first one. Sorry. That was man trap. I'm in the wrong episode again, but it was, it was interesting <laughs> to see the, uh, the, the women in some of the episode and the roles that they were, even the, even the, like when Gary refers to the one lady as a cold refrigerator or whatever. Um, the freezer unit. Yeah. Freezer unit. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I'll bet it did. Um, but you know, you see, you see some of this uh, sexism work its way into the, 
'60s show. Again, the audience would have been kind of desensitized but, to it because they were been used to this sort of thing. But for us, looking at it in the, you know the year 2020, you know we're 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 very hypersensitive, very aware. You know, though, I feel like in some ways they were a little bit more honest because, you know, she she did say later on the show that professional women have a difficult time kind of implying mm-hmm. like it's difficult as a woman to be in a position of authority and not come across as a cold refrigerator unit. And, you know, 2020, we're, we're still, you know, women are still seen as kind of bitchy if in certain, when they get into those certain roles. So I'm like, yeah, they, they were kind of a little bit more honest about it. Now it's not, like acceptable to say that yeah. you, they just think it instead. So I, I feel like when it aired, it would have been, Oh, she's a horrible person. And watching it now on my thought was my God, Gary's a jerk. <laughs> I, I like that. It was, I like that it was there and I like how direct it was. And she was the head of science of one of the science groups. So Roddenberry had a perspective that was that was definitely the zeitgeist of all of this. He saw this coming, all of this coming, and put it on TV as as best he could. So, and she did call Gary out. It oh yeah oh she put him in his place. You know, great hero of the story wasn't she? Without her sacrifice, you know, true Kirk Kirk kind of talked her into it, but. Without her sacrifice, you know, there's no beating Gary. She, she yeah. really, she was the, uh, she was she the hero in some ways. Yeah. Uh, Kirk was able to reach her before, before it got to her head, like it got to Gary's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a deleted scene. Um, it's on YouTube. It kind, of, it kind of gives you a hint of the kind of person Gary is. Uh, he's walking in the corridor and he sees an attractive brunette walk by and he's looking at her. And then the pretty blonde yeoman that we see on the bridge, he sees her and then he, then he starts following her and it's all, it's very subtle, but you kind of see, okay, Gary's kind of a horn dog, I guess. <laughs> that's, that, that's what I thought I, I kind of got from the uh, little deleted scene. Yeah. Oh, that was ironic. Kirk, who who were used to being, uh, uh, you know, a ladies' man, is ironically not at all that. Not in this, <laughs> not in this episode. episode. You know, back in the academy, uh, 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 Gary describes him as a as a stack of books with legs. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's inter- interesting. Interesting description of Kirk, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> not what I uh, but, picture Kirk when I think of the academy. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's interesting that. Maybe for Kirk, for that part of Kirk to kind of grow up, uh, Gary had to be out of the way. Uh, although, you know, you could also argue that that Gary's influence was what made Kirk eventually be that that kind of confident ladies' man. <laughs> That's true. True. Uh, there, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And, and in watching the episode... Do you notice that Gary is driving the ship with one hand and holding the other, the hand of the pretty yeoman next to him? 
So it's Gary's fault that the ship wrecked into that force field. And- it's, it's very, very much his fault. I mean, that's what happens when you're paying attention well, to the lady and steering the ship. Ten Come and on. two, Gary. Ten and two. <laughs> exactly. All of you listeners, please practice proper safety driving protocols and do not be holding hands while driving. Pay attention to the road or you too could end up in a barrier, develop godlike powers and get killed. Yes, yes. It all kind of pales next to the fact that they're not wearing seatbelts. Well, true. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I, I also have the problems with their lack of safety. A lot they have to learn. That's right. Well, (laughs) do they ever use seatbelts on the Enterprise? Ever. Inertial well, damp. No, why, why don't they have seatbelts? That's what I want to know. <laughs> There's just more I mean, drama. They, they, they do with the movies that nobody likes. Yeah. What, what was that, Mike? In, in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, you can kind of understand it. It's the 20th century. They haven't out yet, but you know, by the time you get to Kirk's era, they should be wearing seatbelts. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, one would think that, you know, they don't have seatbelts in Next Generation or Voyager either. So, I mean. Maybe it's kind of like uh, kind of like that quote at the end of Back to the Future. Roads, we're going, we don't need roads. Maybe it's the future. <laughs> we're going, we don't need seatbelts. We don't need seatbelts. Yeah. It could be that they had they had developed a form of, of inertial dampener that would keep you in your seat. How many times do we see them being knocked out of their seat when they, like, wreck the Enterprise? That's all. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> and have you noticed that they're all able to just get up and like walk around and like fight and doing anything? If you have been in a car accident, you would know that after like the next day you were sore, you were not going to be up running around fighting aliens. You're gonna be like, you know what? You can take over Earth. I'm good. That ESP, so they were okay. Well, I'm just saying, like in general, that that oh yeah, ESP saves you. I mean, it kind of cushions your fall. That's right. Or makes you not sensitive to it. Maybe you're in pain. You just don't realize it because of all the LSD. Oh, the maybe. adrenaline. Yeah. Maybe. 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 They do. They don't follow that suit in. Uh, I don't know if they do in the original series. because I haven't watched it. But in next gen, you see them falling and people being actually hurt and staying down. At least oh, yeah. in part. So. And especially their bridge consoles blowing up in their face. Yeah. 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 They're always the dermal regenerator. Next scene. <laughs> yep. Yeah. As long as you survive, the dermal regenerator will fix you up. Yeah. That would be so nice to have. It would be. It'd be great oh. to have. I know this. This is a very random. It's eight o'clock. Um. Thank you, computer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, the bridge is speaking to her. Thing, but something <laughs> I picked up on, and I wanted to double check, and I did. Uh, I was fascinated that she had that um the the that she had trousers on so i just looked it up and the female variant of the uniform with trousers you only see women in the cage and where no man has gone before in the trousers after that all the females went into the tiny skirts with the the little the matching underpants costumes that's probably input from the sponsors yeah. Wait, the gal has without looking you know she's got trousers on yeah I, I've heard this that um, 
and I'm not saying it's true or not. It maybe it's just an urban legend, but Grace Lee Whitney didn't like the trousers, and she said, "She said, look, I got great legs. You know, she wanted to flaunt them. You know, and Gene Roddenberry said, yeah, that's a good idea. So the women wore miniskirts. Hey, sure. Yeah. <laughs> just give me a moment. Um, um, yeah." Okay. All right. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Let me think about that. That's a, uh, for this information, I also found that I found a bunch of trivia bits that were funny. Like um, you guys had mentioned the fight scene with the ripped shirt during and after the fight scene, when his shirt was ripped, it's obvious that Kirk has hair on his chest for the rest of the series. His <laughs> chest is shaved. Oh, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> Where no hair has gone before. Goodbye. Totally <laughs> fine. Hairy chest. <gasps> Clutch my pearls. No. I think he also wore makeup on his nipples. <laughs> oh, my stars. This is no, way too I much think. information. <laughs> uh, dare I ask why? You know, I they were too they light, Miles. They were too light. <laughs> we weren't camera ready. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess that was too much for the uh, sensors. You know, uh, make a bunch of nipples. Oh. <laughs> I wonder if they did that because so when I was watching the episode, I let it roll into the next episode, which was about a bizarre pandemic that everybody got from touching each other. So that was a little close to home. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's the episode where Sulu runs around with an FBA. And he or a foil, and he wants to fence everybody, and he's not wearing a shirt, and he's oiled till the death, you know, to the god. So I wonder if they had to catch him up a little before they oiled him down. (laughs) Oh wow! The aesthetics of the of sixties is very interesting. Yeah, (laughs) mini skirts, oiled, (laughs) prominent nipples, but no hair. No hair. No hair is not allowed. Also, I found confirmation that the phaser rifle that Kirk uses it appears for the first and only time in the series. However, it can be seen on many preseason one promotional photos. Yes, that's true. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You, you see Kirk in, in the in the the uniform that that would be going on moving forward. Him holding the phaser rifle. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It is I got kind to hold, of, go ahead. I got to hold a, I got to hold a replica of that uh, Shore Leave 2011. Uh, Sally Kellerman's assistant had that kind of as a display at her station, and he was he was kind enough to let me hold it. I remember that. I remember that. We have pictures of you doing that. I yeah. missed all the good ones. <laughs> yeah. There'll be more. Oh, it would have been a good one this time. Yeah. It would have been, yeah. Yeah. Brandon Rouse. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's uh it is interesting. I wonder the I wonder the there has to be a psychology behind uh cutting the rifle out of the 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 Star Trek universe. You put it in the pilot and say, Well, okay, is this again a sponsor thing? No rifles. Uh, we, we we're so used to after this time seeing, you know, handheld phasers and this became like the weapon of choice for Starfleet, right? Um and the rifles seem very uh very militant and maybe this is uh maybe that's the answer right there the fact that it was too militant for a starship uh, like the enterprise I, I which was, is exploration. I was gonna say, 
it may have been too militant considering the 60s like eventually got to be very like anti military yeah, yeah i mean he was you know was uh was adamant that this was a a voyage of exploration right you know, to go where no man's gone before not not to be you know even even though clearly it was uh, it was a kind of quasi military uh organization um he was he was adamant that it wasn't uh, military, and you don't see another one until the later seasons of Next Gen, post Borg. So when well, they actually would have an enemy to. Right. Could it also have been like, as far as acting with props, like it was just too unwieldy to try and do like all of those moves, like the rolls and the kicks and the fighting, holding a rifle. So like, eh, we'll just go with handhelds then. Because like what one, of the things, <laughs> Maybe. Um, one of the things that like I can't remember the name of the guy who invented the Klingon language. Um, uh, Mike Mark Mark Yeah. Thank you. And he even like I even met him and like uh, anyway. Um, he like when you look at the Klingon language and the way it's it's written, um, he's had people come up to him and and say like, is this some sort of reference to this language and this language? And he said, no. The reason that's capitalized is so that the actors knew that that was an important word and that, and there's a, there's an apostrophe there for a glottal stop because everyone was pronouncing it wrong. It really wasn't any kind of like, ever since he said that, like every time I think about, about choices that are made for, for, for any show, especially in science fiction, sometimes we find these super deep meetings and then it turns out like, Oh, well he didn't like running around with a rifle. So we just gave him a pistol. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm wondering right. if, if it's that's you were saying of, a, of an answer. Yeah, go ahead. I Mike. think what you were saying about um, rolling around with the rifle and stuff like that. I think that's probably true. You wouldn't have a most of the times when they were using phasers. I think they were on the ship or on a ship, and I think you wouldn't have a rifle. You know, it's just it's just overkill. Uh, and unwieldy looking in, in a narrow corridor. There are a few cases, you know, where, um, uh, where you know, the episode, for instance, with the Gorn um, arena. Right. I, I was thinking where, of that one. Where a rifle, um, where it would have made sense for them to come beam down with a rifle. But for the most part, I think you're right. It's just, uh, it, it's just unwieldy to, to have a rifle. And, and, and from a, you know, if you talk about within the metaphor, you really didn't need a rifle. Phasers were, were powerful enough to destroy mm-hmm. them at, at the molecular level. Did uh, I was going to ask actually about that in the because uh, I haven't watched the whole original series. Do we see phasers actually disintegrating people like you do in Next Gen? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah. yeah. So so you see that. So I mean, why do you need a rifle if a phaser does a job? Right, right. I guess well, it might have something to do with range or accuracy. Or oh, yes, yeah, true. Yeah, <laughs> probably. You're fighting a god, too. That's true. I mean, you need a rifle to take down a god, let's be honest. <laughs> well, well it, it's true. If, if, if you were to, were to reshoot those scenes and have Kirk using a, a phaser instead of a phaser rifle, it would look silly, that's, right? That's true. <laughs> that's true. He's bringing down his mountain on top of uh, Gary. Mm-hmm. Well, in the other episodes, you don't have to fight a god, so you don't need the rifle. Right, so right. Hence. that's those they have them, but it's his only like 
In case of God. Yeah, in case my- of God. Break glass. <laughs> break glass in case of God. There we go. Plus- when we encounter God like superpower being, we get these out. Everything else only need this. Uh, notice they no longer have those uh, when Picard comes on because uh, Q shows up first episode and there's no rifle. So. Well, they hadn't used them for years. They said, eh, we don't need them and got rid of it. It's They decommissioned them. I decommissioned won't make those comments right now. <laughs> I'll stay away from political comments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, we're, we're, we're closely encroaching on our hour here, and I want to kind of honor that. Uh, any last comments, uh, things that stuck out to you about the episode that we feel like we should cover here before uh, we kind of wind, wind on the show? And I want to turn it over to Mike to talk a little bit about where people can follow him and find his stuff. But before we do that, anything else about the episode that you kind of want to highlight the way this impact? We kind of, I think, hit on how it impacted the series going forward. But anything else that's, that comes out? I think that uh, the reason why this finally sold the producers was the, the, you, you had a, a great story uh, that was hidden in, in all this action. And uh, this is what they're, this is what they're looking for. Jeffrey Hunter, good actor, but you needed a William Shatner to, to carry this show. And we, you could see maybe not totally in its fruition, but you could definitely see early on that, that this, this show is going to be really good. Yeah. He is uh, Captain Charisma. Yeah, he is. He is. Any other thoughts? I wish Kelso hadn't gotten killed. Kelso was a character who had who had uh, who I was interested in. I, I thought he would have made a good ongoing character. Oh He didn't want to die either. The actor, the actor liked the work. He he wished they would have kept him on. Yeah, yeah he was a he was a great guy actually. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, well, uh, Michael, I want to turn it over to you a little bit. Uh, we have you, you mentioned that you have uh, the book, the, the various uh, short story collections. You have a Kickstarter coming up. Uh, why don't we start with the Kickstarter? Remind us again that the Kickstarter is for a collection of short stories that's coming out. Am I correct? Yes, um, it's uh, it's going to be called The Immigrant and Other Stories. Um, in the past, my collections have, have been long, drawn-out kind of titles, and, and it's hard to fit it on the cover, and, and my book designer gets mad at me. So, <laughs> all right, so forget it. We're just going to call it The Immigrant and Other, and Other Stories, and it's a collection of science fiction, fantasy, um, even a little horror uh, superhero stories, all the stuff that I, that I really want to do. Okay. Um, uh, you know, um, it, it's coming out from crazy eight press, which is a, a, um, consortium of, uh, of writers that I helped to found, uh, about 10 years ago. Yeah. Phenomenal um, group of writers. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, in crazy eight press, we, we write the things that are closest to our hearts, the things we really want to write. And, you know, the marketplace, be damned. Um, uh, there are things that, uh, you know, that we've, we've presented over the years to, uh, to traditional publishers there, you know, there's this one thing, uh, I, I do, um, it's a series, um, based in a 21st century Aztec empire, 
a series of noir murder mysteries called Asla. And and uh, I, I once presented this to to an editor at, at Del Rey. Um, and she said, Mike, this is what a great idea. This is fantastic. I love this. I want to read this. I can't buy this because can you imagine telling a bookstore buyer, yeah, it's a 21st century Aztec Empire noir murder mystery. You know, his head would explode. So, <laughs> so I can't buy it, but yeah, I'd really like to read it. So these are the kinds of projects that we do um, uh, on this what are you talking about? That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, like, what average reader are they talking to? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a question of where they put it in the store. You know, do they put it in, in mysteries? Do they put it in in uh, alternate history? Do they put it in, you know, that's the kind of stuff that... Ah, uh, just stick in the metaphysical section. It'll, it'll work itself out. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm just saying, uh, Mike, uh, thinking um, alternate history has been a real kind of growing genre within sci-fi. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that intrigues me. The reason this isn't technically alternate history is because... It takes place hundreds of years after. The, the turning point, typically in an alternate history, you're examining something at the point where it diverges from our uh, uh, timeline. Right. Um, this is uh, um, a, an empire, a modern Aztec empire, that, that takes, uh, the, the books take place hundreds of years after that turning point, where Cortez doesn't lose his empire, uh, where Cortez doesn't, uh, conquer the Aztecs. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in that sense, it's not technically an alternate history, but it's based on an alternate historical timeline. Right. But in any case, um, you know, at Crazy A Press, that's the kind of stuff we do. The kind of thing that we always wanted to do, the kind of thing that we're passionate about because um, <laughs> uh, we, the theory is that if we're passionate about it, then maybe readers will be as well. We'll find an audience and we don't have to find, you know, sell a hundred thousand copies uh, for it to be worthwhile. Right. So that's, uh, uh, that's crazy. A press. And, uh, and that's uh, where um, I'm coming out with um, uh, my short story collection. So crazy. A press. So I was going to, I was going to ask you where, 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 where they can find the Kickstarter to kind of maybe either support this or find out more about the collection. Well, um, in a, uh, a week to two weeks, I'll be launching a Kickstarter. Uh, best, the best thing they can do is look for my name um, and uh, under uh, on the Kickstarter website, and uh, then they'll be directed to that to the campaign. Um, or they can look up the immigrant, uh, which is which is what it will be called. So, um, uh, if uh, every so often they check that, they'll they'll certainly come to the campaign right. as well. Would would you message us and then like we could like post it on our Facebook page. I would be thrilled to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. And we'll, we'll, we'll kind of, okay. kind of cause, cause, cause many of the diners have, uh, you know, you know, heard about you over the years and you obviously interacted with the show before. And so there's a, uh, there's a little bit of familiarity and you, you can get some, and many of them are also surely people in Farpoint, And so they'll also have some familiarity to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah. Um, for the thanks for the help. Yeah, um, Pangea actually is also a crazy eight press uh, uh, enterprise. Um, it's uh, um, 
a lot of the authors, uh, probably half the authors in uh, in the Pangea series are um, are my colleagues in Crazy Age Press. The others are also amazing writers. You know, uh, one of the you know one of, one of the new writers in in Pangea Three is this guy Dan Hernandez. He's he's uh, 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 a guy I've been corresponding with for a little while. He's one of the guys who wrote the um, uh, Detective uh, Pikachu. Uh, oh. Uh, the, the movie okay right that's um, awesome right detective pikachu yeah it was detective pikachu my, my son and i loved that movie yeah so, so uh <laughs> wrote a story for us it's kind of a humorous story that takes place in the middle of, of what we're doing in, in pangea and um uh we have guys who are you know hugo and nebula nominees left and right and and it's intriguing to see how they all kind of fit together. Their different styles kind of fit together, particularly in this last volume where, where it's almost, they're almost writing chapters in a book. Right. It's more like it's closer to uh, maybe writers collaborating on a TV series than it is just writing disparate short stories. Yeah. And, uh, you can also find information at michaeljanfriedman.net and why.net because some, some jerk came along and got michaeljanfriedman.com, believe it or not. Wow. <laughs> now, is there is there another Michael Jan Friedman running around or no. is it, are they squatting? No, just, this is just the guy who is speculating okay. and picking up websites in anticipation of selling them to the people who actually needed them. Okay. Uh, so, dot people suck. Yeah. And, yeah. But, and by the way, there are tons of Michael Friedman's. In the right. World. Tons of Michael Friedman's. Just not Michael Jackson. There we go. Yeah. So, it's only one. Only one. So, yeah, yeah. For better or worse. Yeah. And they can follow you. I imagine. I mean, you, you have a presence on social media as well. Facebook, I know you're on. And yeah. 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 Um, they can find me on Facebook. Um, uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, Friedman MJ, and um, uh, most mostly I'm on Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, Crazy Eight Press also has a website, crazyeightpress.com, and um, and occasionally I appear on your show. Yeah, occasionally you pop up. It's it was great to have you tonight to talk about uh, where no man has gone before. It was fabulous to have you here. Thank you. It, it was great. It was great. Uh, uh, spending some time at the diner. Yeah, you know, uh, social uh, distancing, takeout only, takeout only. <laughs> yeah, we're great seeing you, I think, right? Curbside. Yeah, yeah, curbside, curbside yeah, service. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We just implemented that this week. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's been the running. <laughs> that's been the running joke in the diner since COVID nineteen hit. We we're like, uh, you know, you know, only uh, takeout only, takeout only. But. Well, we do appreciate you uh, joining us again, wash Mike. Hands. Yeah, wash your hands. Six feet. Um, but we do appreciate you joining us again and uh, being a part of our conversation here at the diner. And we'll let you know when this episode drops uh, so you can kind of share it where maybe. And please, as we said before, let us know when the Kickstarter goes live so we can pimp that on our social media as well. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it looks like it's about time for us to wrap up the show. So, uh, Miles, why don't you go ahead and uh, take us out of the show here? All right. Till next time, good night and good luck. We'll see you. Do your dailies. 
know, I keep saying with your tips on the table, but I really can't with COVID. So, you know, tip your waiters and waitresses when you do your takeout, guys. Maybe it's curbside service only. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And go bowl.